Hi, I'm Rich Harwood, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Rich, welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it, it's truly an honor. I was so inspired by what you shared with the Jameson Fellowship this year at the annual uh, event and your insight and your perspectives on life and collective impact and change making have actually shifted how I perceive some of these things. So this is truly an honor. Well, geez, I'd, actually, I'd love to interview you about how it's, how it's shifted some of your thinking. We'll do that one day. <laughs> but I, I want to dive right in with our, our main theme of the podcast. And I, I ask every guest the same question. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating how the answers vary. But it's simply this. How do you define compassion? You know, first of all, I think I think of compassion as not something that's easy. I think that when one truly engages in compassion, it can make us uncomfortable. It can make us have to confront things that we're, we've been unwilling to confront in the past. It can make us have to see and hear other people that maybe we haven't seen and heard before in our lives. So when I think of compassion, I think of how is it that we're opening our soul to other people? How is it that we're seeing and hearing other people? How is it that we afford every individual uh, dignity as a non-negotiable in life, uh, as a God, as I would say, as a, a, as a person of faith, as a God-given right? Um, and that... Uh, that even if we don't like what someone is doing, or maybe better said, especially if we don't like what someone is doing, are we able to see and hear them? Are we able to reach out to them? Are we able to find ways to join hands together and lock arms together to get something done together? So, so there is no easy definition for me on this. It, it's this constellation of, of stuff that I think um, is the makings of life, actually, and is the makings of how we relate to one another and how we live together and, and our own sense of being um, as individuals and being together. Well, I think that that's a great way to frame it because compassion is a huge subject. And I, I love how you said it's being open to another soul. That's so profound. And I think that just kind of encapsulates everything else you, you wrapped around it with being able to hear each other and to lock arms and join hands. So yeah, we're, we're definitely gonna make a meme out of, out of that uh, definition. So thank you for that. Yeah, and the question, I think, as you know, Will, in today's day and age and the with the divisiveness that we are experiencing as a country, with the acrimony that we're experiencing as a country, it's so, it's so easy for us to hunker down and so easy for us to retreat and so easy for us to throw up our hands in frustration and exasperation and to say, you know, I don't have room to be compassionate toward others. 
I'm not even sure if I'm willing to be compassionate toward others. And it's now, especially now in this time of division and acrimony, when each of us as individuals need to, to have the courage and the humility to step forward and to exercise a sense of compassion, not because we need to agree on everything because we're not going to, not because we're gonna be able to work on everything together because surely we're not going to, but because we want a decent society, because we want a society that reflects the best in us and the best of us. And we want to help co-create a society where we each can fulfill our God-given potential. And I think that that's really critical right now. Yeah, and I like that word co-create because this is really a collective. And one of my favorite subjects to talk about is our interdependence. Mm -hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has a phenomenal well, several, <laughs> but one in particular is coming to mind uh, about this subject. And he dives into the fact that before you even start your day, you've touched half the world. You've gotten your cocoa from West Africa and, you know, your coffee from Colombia. He just goes through this list that is, is just everyday things that we just don't think about and how we are really connected to not just you know, our families, not just our city, but literally the world. Yeah, and he wrote, as you know well, well, he wrote about this in his letter from Birmingham jail, mm -hmm. about how we are inextricably linked in this human network. And, you know, when you think about, if one can imagine this, sitting in a jail after intense discrimination, repeated discrimination, repeated attempts to push someone down, as Dr. Martin Luther King was, um, or attempted, people attempted to do to him. And here he was sitting in a jail, thinking about the interconnectedness between and among us and the implications of that for what it means for how we need to come together and create a better society together. And I think it's a message, I just quoted this not long ago in a, in a piece I wrote, um, it's a really good reminder to us today about how we need to step forward and co-create the world that we want to see around us. And I, and I don't say that as some utopian notion, mm -hmm. but as, uh, as something that is practical and real and something we need to make concrete in our daily lives. Yeah. And that's, that's something that you said during your talk that really caught my attention was we're, we're not trying to, to pretend we can create a utopia and I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'm one of those people that I wear the rose colored glasses, like everything's always, not just half full, like it's always full because even in the space, you know, that's just me, right? And I love the fact that you're like, well, we have to give something that's actually attainable. And so how do you make the distinction between going after what is possible and the difference, I guess, there between what's possible and what some may view as utopian, and then add in one more element of the status quo. And how do we, how do we balance kind of these three different spectrums? Yeah, so one way I think about it is, if you were to ask people in Las Vegas about their aspirations for their lives in the community or for the Valley, they would tell you things that matter to them in their daily lives that they want to see happen so that they can create the kinds of lives and the kind of community that they want. And in the articulation of those shared, those individual and then shared aspirations, I think what we would find are things that are actionable, 
doable and achievable, uh, but things that really matter to people. And so to your first point, they were to one of your points, they would be things that would, by definition, change the status quo because they would be helping people move something forward in their lives and in the community. But here's the distinction between those shared aspirations and utopia. Utopian visions would be things that are unachievable, things that are so far beyond our reach and that what I find in communities that they no longer hold relevance or meaning to people in their lives. They no longer relate to people's lived experiences. They no longer relate to things that matter to them. That doesn't mean we can't dream. Um, I've written three or four books now with the, with the word hope in, in the title, and I hope we can get to the distinction between hope and utopian dreams. But, but uh, I think the distinction here is that, you know, in American society, actually, um, there is a tradition of, of our nation being rooted in what's called American pragmatism. And, um, and I think that American pragmatism is about let's do things that can work. Let's do things that we can achieve. This means that we will always have ideals. We want to become a more perfect union. So we're going to shoot for things that are maybe unattainable right now, um, that are ideals, but they're not utopian in the sense that they're, they're so far beyond us that we will never get there. So and, Rich, what would be an example of something that would be utopian? I think when I was working in Flint, Michigan, and they had just lost 30,000 auto jobs, um, something utopian was that um, there was would have been discussions about in the next three years, how are we going to turn this community into Palo Alto, California? And with all the amenities that Palo Alto has and um, the built infrastructure that Palo Alto has and the mix of people that Palo Alto has. Well, you know, if you talk to folks in Flint, as I did over many years, they didn't want to live in Palo Alto. They wanted to live in Flint. They took great pride in their community. They moved there for a reason. They wanted to stay there for a reason. And what they wanted to do was not create some utopian vision that someone imposed on them from someplace else. They actually wanted to, to, to regenerate and rejuvenate their community as they knew it and make it better and stronger and more resilient. And so that included things like, we need to clean up abandoned housing in our neighborhoods. It included things like we need to clean up the trash in our neighborhoods. It included things like we need to combat racism in our community. It included things like now we need safe drinking water. There's nothing utopian about any of those things. They're practical things that people want to do to improve their lives and create a better future for themselves, their families, their children, and for folks who follow them. Yeah, I like the frame that you put around that. And that's why I asked just to get a clear example. And I think Flint is a, a, a great one. I'm from Detroit and have family in Flint. So, you know, very, very familiar. But it's so important that we, we still hope, we still dream, and we recognize like what is actually possible within the context of the community we were working in. Well, here's a, a really important distinction, which goes to the utopian conversation and also goes to the notion of hope. Uh, I've done a lot of work on the difference between authentic hope and false hope. And so my belief about utopian dreams is they're a, an act of false hope. We are setting up expectations we can never move to. We're setting up expectations. We're making false promises and false pledges to people that can't be attained. 
authentic hope is rooted in a belief that actually um, things are still beyond us, but that we can still move towards them, that we can still come together and put hard issues on the table and talk about them. And we gain hope from hearing that we can actually deal with these issues. We gain hope by reflecting people's reality. And you're a pastor, right? The prophets talked about imagination. But the prophets also talked about something else that I think is really important. They talked about the only way to engage your imagination is to understand the reality in which you live. That's authentic hope. It's connecting those two things together. And too often utopian visions and false hope disconnect our reality from our, our imagination from reality. And I want to get to talking about reality in just a moment, but before we get there, here in Las Vegas right now, we have an epidemic of despair, and justifiably so. We're, we're very hard hit by the pandemic, and because of the lack of diversity in industry, higher than average unemployment, I mean, the list goes on and on, but it's really affecting our children, and some see no hope and no future, and have we actually are seeing an uptick in suicide attempts, which breaks my heart. And I'm just like, we've got to do something. I don't believe that ending poverty is utopian. I don't believe that giving every child a quality education is utopian. I think that that's practical. I think it's well within our reach. And I think it's the best thing we can do to move forward as a community, you know, if we want to just survive. Like at one point saying eradicating poverty and hunger was a far, a far-fetched dream. But now having it is a dystopian nightmare and it, it shouldn't exist in, in my opinion. We have resources, we have, we have the technology that allows us to, to do some of these things. In your view, what, what is the disconnect between the possible and what we're actually going for politically? I think one of the disconnects is an ingrained narrative that we hold in our minds and between and among ourselves that we can't do certain things, that we don't have the capacity or the know-how or the wherewithal or the wisdom to come together and achieve certain things. So I think when it comes to uh, childhood or teen suicide, or when it comes to the opioid and meth crisis in some communities, when it comes to a lack of jobs in some communities, uh, I think we can begin to believe that we can't solve these problems, that we can't effectively address them. And I think one of the things that engenders possibility is our ability to tell stories of where we are making progress and how we're making that progress and why we're making that progress and how we can begin to tell these stories in a way that are not rooted in hyperbole or again, some utopian vision that everything's gonna be perfect, but that are rooted in the work that we're doing together, that it's messy, that it's hard, but that we're overcoming challenges. And yes, we fell down, but we had the wherewithal to get back up and to keep going. And yes, we made some wrong moves, but we also had the ability to recalibrate our efforts and get on a better path. And what I've learned in working in communities is if we can learn how to make these stories, which are often will invisible to ourselves, if we can learn to make the invisible visible, and if we can learn to start to tell these stories to one another in an authentic, real way, with the good, the bad, and the ugly embedded in them, that these stories give us a sense of possibility, and they do something else that's also really critical to your, answering your question. 
when we hear these stories, they implicate us. They implicate us, much like parables do, right? They implicate us that we could be one of the actors in this story. Mm-hmm. We could be the ones who are co-creating this progress. We could be the ones, maybe not on this issue, but on some other issue in our local neighborhood or someplace else in town, that we could be actors, co-creators, partners, builders of doing things in our community. And so there are lots of things I think we need to do to, to get at your question, but I think these ingrained narratives and the way we counter them by making the invisible visible is really a critical step in moving forward. I love that. And that's, that's really the purpose of this podcast is to amplify messages of hope, to show the reality and then what is also possible. Uh, I guess a few episodes back before yours was Miss Nevada. And she shared how she was depressed and just in a pit of despair that she could not climb out of. But everyone looked at her as this beautiful woman that had everything. And so, you know, we tell both sides of her story, the, the trial and the triumph. Right. And it, it was one of our most powerful podcasts, I would say. Yeah, that sounds like, and, and you know, we all, as individuals, we all have both the triumph and the trial. And as communities, we have it also. And I think, again, this sort of goes back to the utopian thing. I think sometimes when we get caught up in utopia, we want, to sweep away the trials. We want to pretend that, that everything is great and that everything will always be great. And look, uh, the fact is, is that, as you just said, in Las Vegas and in the Valley and, and, and in places like Detroit, where you're from, or where you have family in Flint, not everything is great, but we can create triumphs over those challenges. And I think in talking about our ability to move forward, again, back to the prophets, we have to acknowledge, if we want to ignite our imagination, it is important to acknowledge our realities. And by connecting the two of them is where the sense of possibility gets created. Yeah. So Rich, I want to dive into something that could be a little controversial. So I hope you've got your seatbelt on. Okay. And that is really the subject of reality. So right now, our political climate has created really two distinct realities, and there's a multitude of other kind of micro realities happening at the same time. But when you scroll through social media and people are insisting that an individual is president who is not president or that the the school shootings were staged and their actors or, you know, the list goes on. I don't want to give too much airtime to the, the conspiracies, but these are our neighbors. These are our family members. These are people that we work with day in and day out. How can we join hands with someone that lives in a objectively different reality? You know, I think we can, um, we can, first of all, insist that some things are facts. I think, you know, I worked in Newtown after the massacre there. I was called into that community after the massacre. It happened. It was real. 26 families lost family members. Um, And so, you know, I don't think in terms of dealing with reality and being compassionate that we need to accept... um, conspiracy theories that clearly 
are not true. And so I think we should not give way to that because by giving way to that, we give license to it. By giving license to it, we it becomes corrosive in our society. Now, so that's one thing. And I think leaders of all kind need to step forward and, and engage in trying to talk about those things. I think beyond that, um, I think we need to uh, engage people. We can, we, can, we can argue about that forever. Um, at the same time, though, I think we can engage people about other things that we each care about. Let's go back to some of the topics you raised. Do, do we care about the fact that, that youth in our community are committing suicide? Do we care about the fact that there might be people going hungry? Do we care about the fact that um, our education system during COVID um, might need a boost from the community? And how do we find ways to come together around those things that we care about? And here's why I think this is important. Because in coming together around the things that we care about, we reignite in ourselves not only compassion for one another, but our shared humanity. And not only our shared humanity, but our ability to actually affect change together. And I think in that process, some of these conspiracy theories get loosened up because we get loosened up because we begin to see things differently. We begin to experience things differently. We begin to, you know, why is it that people hold conspiracy theories? Because they're afraid, because they might have grievances, because they don't see a way out of something. They don't see a way forward to create a better life. They don't believe that anyone's listening to them. Um, so how do we combat those conditions as opposed to just the argument? And that's where I would go. And I think that's I how we start. Just a second here. How do we combat those conditions? That's, I, I think that is, wow. I'm just, I've got goosebumps thinking about the implications of what that really means. Uh, we were doing a, a training the other week and one person said, we adjust systems or we fix systems, not people. And I think that that's kind of the same train of thought there, which is what are the conditions that created the possibilities for these alternate <laughs> realities to exist? And let's start there and still attempt to find common ground and also refuse to allow the things that we don't agree on to keep us apart. Find something that we can agree on and work with those and we'll deal with other stuff kind of as it comes. Not, not minimizing it, but also not allowing it to, to create a barrier. So right. thank you for that. And, and I think there, there's another piece of this, which is really practical, which is how do you get started, mm -hmm. right? And so this is something that our, our, my work speaks to a lot, but, but it may not be starting with the most difficult people. It may, if you think of this as concentric circles, you wanna think about how can you start with folks who are ready to engage on some of these other things. And because what we know, so we're, exist, we're living through a contagion right now. It's a negative contagion. But there are positive contagions in society, how stories spread, how parables spread, right? How good goodwill spreads, how compassion spreads. Those are positive contagions in my mind. And so when we're trying to combat these conspiracy theories, how do we think about it as we're not gonna win everyone over immediately? And that's not our task. Our task is how do we engage folks so that we can co-create a better society and to do that, we've got to start with folks who are ready to roll and allow this to keep spreading over time to more and more people. And as one person who has a conspiracy theory starts to step forward and eases a bit, 
they'll go back and engage other folks who have conspiracy theories. And they'll say, you know what? I'm actually thinking about things differently now. Why don't you join me in thinking about this a little differently? It doesn't mean you have to vote for the other side. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them on any issues. Uh, but we can create a better community and we don't have to adhere to these conspiracy theories because we're aggrieved, we're afraid, we're living in sorrow, whatever the condition may be. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely spot on. And uh, the, the evidence you know, of your research and work bears that out. So uh, with the same thing in mind, collective impact is kind of like your thing. So years back, you visited Las Vegas and sparked something that really is the reason this podcast even exists. And you worked with, uh, well, you, you tell the story. So we came to Las Vegas, yeah, in 2004, uh, many years ago. And um, we actually released a report um, called, I think it was called On the American Frontier, which talked about the underlying conditions in Vegas. This was when Las Vegas was, was doing exceedingly well economically. It was a boom town. And you know, Will, at the time, when we asked people for a motto for Las Vegas in the research we did for that initial report, they said things like, I'm for me and you're for me. They also said something else, which relates to some of the things that you've been speaking about, which is they said, we have too much of a good thing. We've become too fragmented as a community. We've become too separated from one another. Uh, we drive in, we, we, we leave our homes and, and go to our work and come back and drive into our garages and go into our homes and, and never see one another. I don't even know the folks who live next door to me. And they said, we all came here for, in many cases, a second chance at the American dream for a lot of folks, but we wanna be more connected. We wanna be part of something larger than just than ourselves. And so our work began with the, with the community foundation. It began with KNPR, your local public radio station. Um, and from that uh, expanded and going talking about contagions in a positive way, the work started to spread throughout the community and it started to affect people who were working on foster care and gangs and homelessness and, and all sorts of other issues. It, it affected, I think, the beginnings of, um, is it called Three Square, the, the food security work that's being done in the community. Uh, and it even led, because of how we met, right? It even led to things to, well, to people like Gar Jameson and to the Jameson Fellows, which have now, my understanding is there are 10 cohorts and 250 or so fellows yeah. uh, across the area. And so that started in 2004. We're now in 2021. And those ripples are still occurring, not because of anything I did or the Institute did, but because of what folks in Las Vegas did and how they took this work and ran with it and applied it and made it their own, um, which is something that I take enormous joy in, in just um, at this point being an observer of. And, and, and Rich, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna let you off the hook here. <laughs> yes, it's because of the work that you did in the Institute. Absolutely, you get enormous credit and appreciation because had you not stepped into who you are and brought that to Las Vegas, then who knows where we would be right now? Well, that's that's really kind of you to say, and I, and I appreciate that. So with that in mind, Las Vegas has changed since 2004. Mm -hmm. I remember coming uh, around that time. So a little history about me. I've loved Vegas since I was six. 
my parents brought me here and I just fell in love as a little tiny tot. <laughs> with wow. the city. But uh, for my 18th birthday, I, I flew out. Now I couldn't stay on the strip because you have to be 21 to stay at a gaming resort, but that was fine. I could still walk over from my hotel there and had a great time. Fast forward a few years for my 25th birthday, I brought my great grandmother out and we got in the car and we just drove and drove. And we drove into a neighborhood. I was actually looking for a mountain and they're everywhere. So it's kind of hard to miss them. But we drove and drove into a neighborhood and this home that was pristine and huge and just fabulous was like a quarter of the price of my house, which was a shack in Michigan. And I'm like, Grandma, do you see this house? And she's like, I see it, baby. You'll have one one day. And then ironically or coincidentally or, you know, just fate, I actually, my first home in the Valley was down the street from that same home. So it's just amazing. Of course, it didn't cost the same. Prices I was going to ask you. It sounded like you got a good deal. <laughs> yeah, no, no. They've, they've gone up. Prices have changed. But the city itself has, I think, really blossomed. And a lot of that idea of I'm for me, you're for me, is starting to, to dissipate. And people are really beginning to understand the collective impact, both on, on kind of the positive side and the the negative side, because when you look at our city, uh, how interconnected we really are, we're all tied to gaming in some way. When that fails, we all experience that impact. So what are your thoughts about next steps for us as a community? Well, look, I, first of all, just to your last point, I, I believe community needs to be a, a common enterprise. And I do believe that that we need to come with the mindset and the attitude and the behaviors that we sink or swim together. And that we can't, we ought not to leave anyone behind and we can't afford to leave anyone behind. And so when I think um, about your independence, I think that's a great thing to hear. And it's a great thing to hear you talk about how the community has moved forward, notwithstanding the current challenges that it faces, I think what COVID has presented us and what the reckoning with, uh, with systemic racism has presented us and the, the political crisis that we have been living through, not just, you know, that's been germinating for 30 or 40 years now, what all of these things present us, if we can sort of lift our heads up is an opportunity to think about how do we reimagine and recreate where we need to go as a society and in our local communities and in our individual lives. And so what I think of as the future of Las Vegas is uh, communities that are healthy are always recreating themselves. Communities that are healthy are always finding out that they faced, you know, going back to trial and triumph, are always facing new trials. Because as you grow, new, new trials emerge, right? There, there are more newcomers that you have to, you have to integrate, that there, there are more leaders that you have to integrate. You were mentioning to me earlier that, that Vegas is a, a really young town, which means that generationally you have to integrate the, the generations as well. These are all trials in the short run, but they can be triumphs in the long run if we, if we do this well. And so, so when I think of Vegas, I think of let's go. 
let's let's demonstrate what this can look like. Let's take the lessons that we've learned since 2004, say, and the ways in which we've moved forward in good ways. And let's apply those lessons to moving forward, but let's not simply try to replicate them. Let's take the lessons and let's apply them in a way that allows us to create something anew. You know, Eddie Glaude came out with a book about James Baldwin um, recently that the title of which uh, I, I believe is Begin, Begin Again. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we have to keep thinking about how we begin again. That's what makes America special. That's what allows us to become a more perfect union, notwithstanding or because of the stains that this country was founded on. Um, so we have to keep beginning again in communities. And I think Las Vegas actually has the spirit and the know-how to help lead the rest of the country in doing that. We absolutely do. And I, I love that you pick up on the fact that this, this is a city of reinvention. If you think of even celebrities in their careers, they come here to reinvent themselves or get a, a fresh wind or whatever it may be. And people come here to reinvent themselves. And even if it's just rejuvenation for vacation, that's the spirit of our city. And it's interesting. Well, that's why we named that report on the American frontier, because we believed even in 2004, and I remember talking, speaking about this over and over again publicly um, when I was working with folks in Vegas, that, that Vegas, that people come to Vegas by definition for another shot a lot of times. And so Vegas is always becoming. And if there's a place in America that can help us see what is ahead of us, it is a place like Las Vegas. And... Um, I don't mean to make a pun here. I, I was actually going to say that's why I would bet on Las Vegas. And I realized <laughs> because of the gaming industry, that, that would sound too corny. And I don't mean that's not why I'm saying it. So I love it. I'm, I'm tweeting that part of this interview out to the entire world, just so everyone will see that. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, do you have a new book coming out? Speaking of reinvention, tell us a little bit about that. So it, it follows on a book I published not too long ago called Stepping Forward, which is about how we do reimagine and recreate um, society moving forward. This new book is actually um, called Unleashed, and it's about how communities can unleash their potential. And what we did is we looked back uh, over the last 30 years uh, at communities that we had worked with, including Las Vegas. So Las Vegas is one of the stories in this book. And we examined what happened with these communities, not when we were there, but long after we left. And what we discovered, Will, was that uh, there were certain characteristics or things that happened in these communities that enabled the potential of those communities to become unleashed. And there are things that we can do with intention uh, in our actions every day when we're trying to help communities move forward. And so this book is, you know, fortuitously, I think, or serendipitously is coming out at a time when the country is kind of stuck. Um, but I, we started it before then. But, but it's about what are the intentional steps that we can take that, here's the kicker on this, that produce actions that are unexpected, uh, that uh, are driven by um, partners we couldn't imagine coming together before in uh, ways previously, and that produce unforeseen results. And so there's, there's an interplay here between highly intentional actions that lead to serendipitous um, chain reactions 
of uh, of movement forward. Wow. I cannot wait to read that. I have the stepping forward, so this will be a perfect continuation. I'm so excited. Yeah, thank you for asking. Absolutely. So Rich, in our last few minutes together, I want to get to know you a little bit better. And we've talked a lot about the impact of your work and some things happening here in Vegas. But what really sparked your passion for this work in life? Well, you know, this is, goes back to our conversation about trial and triumph. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of things. I quickly, you know, I worked on 20 political campaigns by the time I was 23, and I was frustrated with how they were dividing people and striking fear into people's hearts. I worked for a couple of nonprofits that I think were wonderful organizations, but I was frustrated at the time uh, that too many groups were afraid to get dirt under their fingernails and do the hard work that we need to do. I'm a person of faith, and so I felt called to do this work. But, but Will, the thing that I think prompted me the most was that when I was a child, um, a year or two old, I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. And in the early 1960s, that was a death sentence. So my family was on a death watch, expecting me to, to die by the time I was five. Um, and so I, there was a point at which the doctors turned to my mother and, and said, face it, he's a lemon. Um, I spent most of my youth, much of my youth in hospital beds. I have vivid memories of doctors and nurses and everyone else surrounding my bed talking about me, but never talking with me. Um, and so over time, and what I learned from that experience is what it feels like to have your dignity stripped from you, what it feels like not to be seen and heard, what it feels like to have a system that's supposed to help heal you, uh, destroy you, what it feels like to see your parent parents overwhelmed and out of money and unable to care for you in ways that they want to. Um, and at the same time, what I learned was that people stepped forward. And as I got older and my diagnosis changed, unexpected, going back to this book about Unleashed, unexpected people uh, stepped forward and made sure I didn't fall through the cracks. Um, unexpected people stepped forward, people from, quote unquote, the other side of the tracks that, you know, how people we would, how we talk about people and how we label people, unfortunately. But but a coach of mine um, was the first adult who taught me that it was okay to have hope and that it was okay to exert myself physically. Um, my next door neighbor, going back to the divisions we were talking about, who um, was anti-Semitic, some people believe was anti-Semitic. I'm a Jew. Um, we were the first Jews they ever met, um, but proved that he wasn't anti-Semitic. And he's the one who taught me how to swim and taught me how to build things with my hands and taught me to have confidence in myself. And so um, it's where I learned firsthand that actually community can save people and that community actually has to be a, a common enterprise. So I think that young that experience as a kid is probably the most formative experience and the thing that to this day still shapes everything I do and the work that I do and and probably more importantly, who I am as, as an individual and who I am as a father and and as a member of our larger family. Yeah, so the personal experience with tragedy, with pain, with hopelessness runs deep. Absolutely. And, uh, and realizing that the strength you have within yourself. Um, it taught me about faith. Uh, and it also taught me that you can't go it alone. That even though I have 
a deep internal strength, and even though I have deep faith, that those on their own wouldn't have been enough for me to be here today. Wow. Along those lines, I'd like you to just finish these next few sentences for me. Our greatest strength is? Our innate capabilities. I feel loved when? I'm seen and heard. Without hope? We feel that tomorrow can't be better than today. Compassion creates. Connections that we didn't think existed or may not have believed could exist. Awesome. Well, let our audience know how to connect with you. And I know that they're feeling inspired because I sure am. I'm feeling even more hopeful. And I just want you to know my, my glasses are even more rosy because of our conversation today. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, folks can connect with me by going to our website. It's the harwoodinstitute.org. Uh, there's a, uh, an email um, link there that they can send me a message. I will reply, I promise. Um, there are resources there that people can download for free and start to use. There are ways to order these books. I have a podcast myself, and maybe hopefully someday I can, will, I can get you on it and change the questions uh, <laughs> and uh, that, uh, that people can listen to as well. So I, I hope people will go. And, and probably most importantly, what I'd like to say about that is, I hope people will join us in stepping forward and believing that we actually can get on a path that is more, more just, more equitable, more fair, more inclusive, and more hopeful, and that we can only do it by joining together and that they will join with us so we can join with them and we can do this together. We can leave it there. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you, Rich. This was rich. <laughs> this is with the puns. <laughs>